0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. I'm joined today by Giorgio Angelini and Arthur Jones, the filmmakers behind the documentary film Feels Good Man, which won the Sundance 2020 Special Jury Prize, and Louis Tompros of Wilmer Hale, who represented Matt Fury in the Peppy the Frog litigation, which among other things was the subject of the documentary. So welcome to the show to all of you. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. Thanks very much. Great. It's my pleasure. So I wanted to start by reiterating how much I Absolutely loved this movie. It was so good. The story is fantastic. And you just did an amazing job with the filmmaking. I love the animation interludes. And Matt Fury is probably my new favorite like documentary film character. So thanks a ton. And I can't encourage listeners to watch this movie more. Awesome. Even yeah. more than Tiger, Tiger King. <laughs> Way better than Tiger King. <laughs>
1: we think so too but we're biased
0: okay so for (laughs) listeners who haven't already seen the documentary and may not be familiar with matt fury or peppy the frog or the kind of story behind it or might only know part of the story and not the whole story i wonder if you could kind of give like a potted history of like who matt fury is where peppy the frog came from and sort of what happened that gave rise to this entire uh situation
1: Sure. Um, I I came to Pepe the Frog through buying Matt's comics in the mid 2000s. Matt, um, while living in the San Francisco Mission and working at the community thrift store and hanging out with his friends, started to make a pretty underground zine called Boys Club. It was like a beloved but obscure comic book. And um, I discovered it at an independent bookstore um, around the time it came out. And the name of our film is Feels Good Man. And that is Pepe the Frog's catchphrase. Pepe is one of four anthropomorphic characters that make up the Boys Club comic. And in the, in the foursome, Pepe is sort of the little brother, as Matt Fury calls him. He's the character that uh, all the other characters kind of make fun of a lot of the time. Um, he likes to sleep in. He likes to eat pizza. He smokes too much pot. He's, he's a sweet and lovable goofball of a character. And so uh, what started on the page for Matt um, eventually uh, got kidnapped by the internet. And around 2010, Pepe got taken from Matt's comics. Someone scanned and cut it out. Um, this image of Pepe saying feels good, man. And this became a reaction image in early message board culture. And Matt Fury had nothing to do with this. It was a just kind of one of these viral things that unpredictably happened. Um, And Matt was oblivious to it as well. And so our film traces how Pepe went off the page into the internet. And then over about a five-year period, Pepe went from a harmless reaction image or a good-natured reaction image into something that was actually being used as a propaganda tool for what became the alt-right. Pepe became a symbol for trolls and trolling on the internet. And so we thought that this film could be a really unique story where we were able to tell an artist's journey, um, but then also really tell a story about how trolling moved off of message boards and into mainstream politics. And the way that Matt seeks to control Pepe through copyright could maybe be a little inspiration for people who were seeking to get off their own proverbial couches in their life and um, try to take control of the problems that they had as well.
0: Well, so... When, when Pepe was first starting to be used as an internet meme or as a reaction meme, how did Matt Fury find out about that, you know, kind of when in the duration or the next sort of that, that story, did he find out about it? And how did he feel about it initially? I mean, Matt found out about
1: Pepe being, I mean, Matt had, posted the image of Feels Good Man and the page from his comic book on MySpace. And that seems uh, someone probably took it from there. Um, And people started to email Matt and tell him that they saw his comic in unexpected places. Um, Initially, that was on bodybuilding forums and then also on mushroom forums. And the mushroom forums kind of made sense. Matt's comics have like a psychedelic undertone for sure the bodybuilding forums were a little funny but at the same time the bodybuilding forums were uh, kind of populated by groups of guys who were seeking to improve themselves and as matt talks about both myspace and these bodybuilding building forums were almost like kind of were locker rooms where people would just kind of like joke together and um so he he heard about it that way initially i think he he didn't give it much mind. He assumed it would would blow over and his early take on people using Pepe as a meme was a very San Francisco take. It was based on um, Jerry Garcia's stance on tape trading within the deadhead community. So I think Matt really thought about Pepe as um, all right, people love Pepe. They're making their own versions of Pepe. They're taking my drawings and redrawing them and in Photoshop, changing them. This is all flattery and it's going to go away. And that's the way he initially looked at it.
0: So when people initially started using the Pepe image, or maybe kind of as it snowballed and became more popular as a meme on the internet, did most of the people using it know where it came from and like associated with Matt Fury and the boys club comic, or did they, is your impression they kind of just saw it as like one meme among many and who knows where it comes from, you know, it's on the internet and, it could come from anywhere.
2: Speaking from my personal
0: experience, like Arthur already had a relationship with Matt before we started
2: making the film. I am on the kind of other side, which I think is really the more typical Pepe user variant, which is the person who was very familiar with Pepe as a meme but didn't really know Matt existed. Um, so I think that's probably the more typical um, avenue in which people were introduced to Pepe. It was really purely as an internet meme, especially as meme culture rapidly you know was on the rise from like 2010 to 2015 pepe was in a sense like the the icon of this underground culture that was really started in uh places like 4chan and reddit and was predominantly um populated by young men and pepe was kind of their you know in the early days really just like an icon for weirdness for internet ennui. um And it's really this critical, like, series of events that results in the radicalization, not just of the people on these forums themselves, but of Pepe himself, right? So you get to a point in 2015 where you have an event like Gamergate, which I'll maybe spare your (laughs) listeners the the ins and outs, but essentially involves, like, uh, women asking for more um, representation in gaming culture and then men online predictably having a, a negative response to that. Um but it just like really escalates a culture war that had been bubbling up in these uh internet forums. And it kind of like in a simplistic way, it was kind of like a 4chan which was tended to be more male and uh versus like a Tumblr, which tends to be more female and more like social justice driven. And as Pepe started to become more popular in Tumblr groups and in like pop culture more broadly, like in our film, we show a couple of memes that like Katy Perry and um, and Nicki Minaj post, for example. The original users, these original kind of 4chan guys, get really angry, and it's a kind of predictable punk rock response. I think is probably the simplest way to put it. And so they begin kind of uh, notifying Pepe, or just kind of making Pepe so repugnant and creating such disgusting memes. The, their their initial intent is really just to make the meme so toxic that people stop using it. But what it, it inadvertently kind of uh, puts into play is really an actual full-scale co-opting by actual professional racists who actually see an opportunity with the use of Pepe, with his popularity, to kind of activate a group of aggrieved young men.
0: Yeah, I mean, Watching the film... I got the sense of this really kind of interesting progression in how the people using Pepe thought about their own relationship to the Pepe image and how they they used it. And as you just described, it, it seems almost as if some of these users felt like they were almost the owners of the Pepe character not knowing that it was created by someone else and feeling a kind of investment in it as a representation of them and their community. And then there was almost like a kind of a trademark angle. The way it was used is kind of like almost like a branding symbol for the alt-right movement. So, you know, as an IP scholar, I just found the sort of ways that, that people approached the character and the sort of meaning of the character. Really fascinating and unexpected.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the message boards that Pepe first became popular on are mostly um, anonymous. The people that post there um, don't let the world see photos of them. They don't use their real names. And so Pepe became an avatar. And it's a very unique story to the social media age how attached people can become to a character like Pepe. Um, Matt knew nothing of all of the stuff that Giorgio was speaking about, really, um, as Pepe grew more and more toxic in these very specific spaces. But I think people co-opted Pepe because Um, There was a group of people that really thought Pepe was funny. He rides this line between creepy and, and humorous. The characters in Boys Club all sort of exist within a stunted adolescence. I think there was something innate to Pepe for a group of people that had grown up online, that had grown up entirely online. And they felt that when social media all of a sudden happened and people were putting their real names on Facebook, posting real pictures of their friends and family, that um, this was kind of a front to an earlier era of internet where Pepe was an avatar for them.
0: Mm -hmm. So when people first started using Pepe, divorced from sort of any connection to Matt, did did that bother him or did he just not care? Like, I, I wonder if you have a sense of how he felt about his own relationship to Pepe in relation to the way that people were using it initially. And then obviously when things changed at some point, it, it sparked a need in him to do something about it. And I, I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about you know, sort of what the tipping point was. Um, well, the
1: tipping point for Matt was, uh, and the moment that he and Lewis um, started working together, and you're going to hear from Lewis in just a second, um, was when uh, someone had self-published an Islamophobic children's book that featured Pepe, and um, that was a moment of clear uh, infringement um, and something that he could very uh, th- that he felt like he could fight back in a very specific way in a way that you can't if you're fighting back against a bunch of anonymous people online. Um, But, you know, the other thing to just kind of point out with Matt is he drew Pepe mostly for his friends in his mid-20s. And he wanted to move on and work more in the world of fine art and illustration in his 30s. And so Pepe was the thing that um, he had already personally kind of turned his back to as the internet was finding it. He wanted to leave Pepe behind a little bit personally and focus on other artwork that was important to him. So Pepe is kind of that, you know, it's like that one hit wonder that a band has earlier in their career. And then they have to spend the rest of their career playing that one song that maybe they hate playing. So Pepe is kind of that way for Matt. And I think one of the reasons it took him a little while to figure out how best to protect his copyright was because he has a very complicated relationship to Pepe because it it represents just a a time in his life that he's moved on from. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, so maybe, Louis, then you could talk a little bit about how you came to be connected with Matt and to provide representation for him.
3: Sure, I, and I think uh, Arthur did a great job laying it out and, and the film really does a terrific job of, of explaining what this emotional arc that Matt went through and the efforts that he tried to take to, to, to manage in some way this relationship with this character he created before trying to use legal rights. And it, it really was this book Called the Adventures of Pepe and Pete. That was the tipping point for him because he has a young child uh, and had been doing children's artwork, and actually has a beautiful book called The Night Riders. That's this that includes a frog that is just this sort of gorgeous children's book. And, and then he saw and was alerted to this book um, that had been, as as Arthur said, self published, The Adventures of Pepe and Pete. And that really was the tipping point that that I think for him and and for those close to him suggested he should he should go and try to figure out what he can do about this. Is there anything he can do to stop this kind of hateful um, thing being associated with a character and with his art? Um, and, and the way that he got in touch with me, interestingly enough, was just through sort of a strange series of connections where his wife knew a lawyer who happened to be the law school roommate of, of a colleague of mine. And, and we have within our firm, this, this wonderful kind of civic activism mailing list, he emailed the mailing list and says, anybody know anything about copyright? And I said, it turns out that's exactly what I do is intellectual property litigation. What's the deal? I, I you know, I had seen Pepe, but myself had to Google who Matt Fury was. So I was coming at it from, from Giorgio's angle. Um, and we jumped right in. And, and, and I would love to say that we had some grand vision from the outset as to how to construct a successful legal strategy to fight the alt-right using copyright. Uh, We didn't. It it evolved as the case was moving forward. So the first thing that we did was we knew that we needed to take some pretty quick action um, with regard to this book that really was the tipping point book. Uh, And it had been self-published in this very limited run. It was about to be released um, the following, I think, the Monday after I talked to Matt on a on a weekend, it was about to be released, and uh, and so we needed to take some pretty quick action. We very quickly pulled together a complaint and a and a preliminary injunction request and a TRO request and got it to the the guy who was publishing this book. I immediately got a call from his lawyer saying, essentially, we get it, we're not going to do this. What do you want? We we, we give up. Um, which was great. I mean, it was, it was sort of, I, I, it is at some level, of, as, as Arthur said, a, a pretty straightforward target when you have someone using a character in a book for money with the name, with the picture. It's about as clear cut a case of copyright infringement as we could have hoped for in, in an early stage, uh, of, of, uh, early stage kind of action. So uh, they gave up right away, um, which was great. We, we turned around and, and said uh, to them that we, you know, clearly we wanted to know what profit they wanted. To, we wanted them not to publish this thing any further and wanted to know what profits they'd made off of the first print run. Uh, we found out, and Matt, uh, you know, very quickly said, This isn't about the money. Uh, you know, and this is it was not like we're talking about millions and millions of dollars here. Uh, I, I don't want this money. What should we do? And so I suggested him, and we ultimately did. Uh, request that in, in the settlement agreement to for the for the um, to to resolve the, the copyright infringement case against this Pepe Impede book that they would instead of paying Matt write a check to the Council on American Islamic Relations Foundation, the CARE Foundation, uh, which was a pretty good result. And so and so we started with that early win there. Mm.
0: Mm. So where did it go from there? Because as I understand it. it... It certainly didn't end with that initial very. <laughs>
3: no, you're right. And it was at that point that we got to at least take a sort of a breath and figure out how do we do this? We now have kind of a clear win, a clear settlement agreement under our belt. And that's where we developed the strategy that we ultimately pursued, which was the first thing we needed to do was to, to make a lot of noise, to make clear that Matt is out there uh, and, that, and that people should not be using... Pepe in connection with hateful images or ideas to make money. And that was the line that he was drawing in the sand, and that he had, quite honestly, the backing of of a law firm to go enforce this. Uh, And and so we did. We made a lot of noise. We talked to a lot of press. We issued a press release. We said, this is what's going on, um, and and made as much noise as we could, and then uh, went after several very high-profile infringers. Uh, We went after... Uh, Baked Alaska, who was, you know, he's, you may have seen him more recently in his appearance at the Capitol riots, uh, was sort of a provocateur who had been publishing a book using Pepe on the cover to sell his book. We went after the, uh, the, uh, the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi website. We went uh, after Mike Cernovich, who's sort of a known Men's rights activist who'd been using Pepe in some of his materials. Uh, and, uh, and we brought uh, just sort of a whole series of cease and desist letters, DMCA takedown notices where people were selling things against the combination of for profit uses of Pepe in connection with hateful symbols. Uh, and, and it was very effective. That got that much more media attention and, and was able to sort of amplify that. So our strategy became to secure some early wins, uh, use that to go after high profile targets and make a lot of noise. And then ultimately in, into a stage that fundamentally we've been in for the past two years, which is to then do this kind of whack-a-mole effort to continue to bring down the further continue follow-on infringement, you know, somebody sells their Pepe print with a, not with a swastika, we go after that. So that that's been the, the sort of the stage three, a key part of that stage two, of course, and the subject of, uh, a good uh, portion of of the film is the suit against Alex Jones's Infowars um, company for their their sale of a, of a Pepe poster, and that was uh, one of the only two actual federal copyright cases that we filed suit in, and it was the one that got the farthest all the way through summary judgment and really to the eve of
0: trial. Mm-hmm. Well, so one thing I was wondering was before connecting with you for representation in these matters had matt ever previously pursued any kind of copyright related interests in pepe the frog or boys club and if not sort of how did you kind of set him up to be able to actually enforce his 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 rights Sure. So, I mean, so the
3: short answer is not really. There had been a few things through his publisher and through some actions that he'd taken on his own, but, but nothing uh, in kind of an organized way that would set up his rights in a way that it could be meaningfully enforced. So, the first thing that we did, uh, unsurprisingly, was register his copyright. Uh, this is every time that I talk with artists or, or publishers. Uh, I cannot overstate the importance of if you think that your thing is going to be ripped off for money, you really need to file the copyright registration form. It's not all that hard, uh, but if you don't do it, then you run into situations like we had, where there are significant limits on the damages that you can get and, and no ability to get attorney's fees uh, for them, so there become limitations. So, so that we, the first thing we did was was that. Uh, and then we went through a process of organizing you know, his materials to make sure that we knew exactly when, when he published what and when uh, and, and what, what specific rights we were going to try to claim. Obviously, uh, Matt does not own the right to draw a frog, right? And so we needed to make sure that we were very specific in defining both the visual elements of what he had in as, as best a way we could and, and the character elements to the extent
0: that we needed to assert character copyright uh, going forward. Did you pursue it only as a copyright, or did you consider like trademark registration or any trademark claims over the character or the name as well? Yeah,
3: it's a great question. And, and we had thought about it. Uh, we had thought about pursuing uh, a, a trademark claim. It, you know, it it was going to be a little trickier for, for a variety of reasons. Um w- one is that there, there was not in the same way that there was with, with there was not the um, the the uh, a clean sort of path of continued sales in the way that you really want for strong trademark protection. There was also no registration, and, and Matt actually had at one point uh, you can find it an abandoned application that was done at one point for for Pepe as a trademark, and and so there became these kinds of complications there. Um, the other piece of it was, frankly, from from uh, as we talked and worked more with Matt, the interest that he was really pursuing, and this is where you know I'd, I'd be very curious, Brian, to hear your sort of take from sort of the, the theoretical side of intellectual property law. But the interest he was pursuing felt more like a copyright. Th- that is, the harm that he was perceiving was not sort of a, a business trademark confusion type harm. But really was more of an artistic integrity. He, you know he, he created a thing and his thing was then being used in a way that made other people money from his creativity, which felt very copyrightish uh, in, in a way that is distinct from from trademark. so that so I think both the the practical considerations and just the, the way that the, the, that we were articulating the harm and that he was articulating the harm felt more like a copyright case now, That said, uh, as Matt's lawyer, uh, I I do think he has common law trademark rights in this. So please don't infringe his trademark in any way, anybody that's out there. Uh, But we had uh, pursued copyright uh, really exclusively as part of the the work against the the alt-right uses of of Pepe.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I I mean, I asked the question because I, I agree that it very much feels like Matt's interest in, or objection to certain uses of, tra- of, of Pepe the frog was grounded in his beliefs about what the frog was supposed to mean and the kind of um, the character that he wanted to be out in the world. But in an odd way, the reason I asked about trademark is because it seems like he kind of didn't object so much or at all really to people using Pepe in anodyne or positive ways that were consistent with his vision for the Pepe brand to the extent we can talk about it that way, but did really strongly object to people using it in a way that sullied the brand. And that sort of feels like it sort of sounds in trademark to me. You're right. No,
3: I agree. And, and I think in, in some ways, the, the, the most significant aspect of the harm um, really is, is a trademark type harm in that um, from a pure economic perspective, right? Setting aside the what's right and wrong, the artistic integrity and the rest of it, from a pure economic perspective, the harm to Matt of uh, the, the poster that Alex Jones was selling or, the, uh, him, or his, his character being on a book about uh, hate speech, right? The, the harm there is fundamentally that it, it devalues. It's a it's a it's a dilution by tarnishment type uh, type harm. Um, now I think, and, and as we articulated in the litigation against Infowars, because this was a direction, one of the many directions that they went to throw up defenses, I think that that harm also is a copyright harm. But I do agree with you that, that it, it that the specific that specific economic impact. Uh, which ties into Matt's interest in in managing what happens to Pepe, right? Th- those two things are trademarkish uh, as well.
0: Mm. So, when you were preparing Matt's case or cases against these various objectionable uses about Pepe, what were your like biggest concerns about? the arguments you were making, the claims you were going to have to defend, like, what were you worried about? And what kind of, what did, what did you stay up at night, like <laughs> wrestling with, in terms of thinking about framing your argument in a way that was going to be compelling, not only for the defendants to, you know, kind of induce them to settle, but maybe also for like the judge and the fact finder if sure. to get to that point.
3: Yeah. So I'll, let me, let me give you three. And then, and then I've got sort of an aside uh, of one that, that that came up that very much I was not staying up late worrying about. But let me give you the, the three sort of big ones. And the, the most obvious thing is the the obvious thing that that every copyright plaintiff uh, has to worry about, which is the question of fair use, right? So so we're dealing here with a circumstance where we have a, a character and an image that has been used a lot, uh, and we are specifically dealing with uh, with. Commercial uses, which we were very clear about, but commercial uses that were being made by people with with strong political agendas, right? So it is unsurprising. I was not at all surprised after we filed suit against Infowars that Alex Jones went on the air and said, this is a violation of my First Amendment rights. This is my political speech what the hell is going on? And use many more expletives, and I'll and I'll use. On, I don't want to offend the sensitive ears of your listeners, but but I think that that was not a huge surprise. That that was exactly what they were going to be going to be their defense. I mean, the the second named entity in the Infowars lawsuit is is parent company, which is called Free Speech Systems LLC, right? So we knew that that the defense was going to be the, the effectively the First Amendment defense to, co- defense to copyright, which is which is fair use, right? That's sort of how these things begin to boil together, and, and it was not a crazy fair use defense that there is. Uh, an aspect. There are definitely out there fair uses of Pepe that that legitimately are in various ways commentaries or transformations. We were structuring our actions to make clear, number one, that everything that we were going after was commercial, uh, which which makes the fair use claim much weaker. We, we, We did not sue Alex Jones for putting up a picture of Pepe the Frog when talking about uh, you know, about political activity on his show. We sued for selling a poster featuring Pepe the Frog. So that, that was a, a key aspect of this as well. And then we did, uh, you know, want, so, so that's I guess the, that's the, the, the first big picture fair use question was commercial versus non-commercial. And we were very careful to structure our claims in a way that we were going after commercial activity which is where the fair use defense is, is at its weakest. Uh, the second thing I think that, that falls into the keeping me up at night question is, is the really interesting issue that we, we were in new-ish, uh, uncharted territory with, with a meme. Um, and there was a non-frivolous argument, and again, one that InfoWars made that said, look, uh, just like a trademark can become generic, your, your IP-focused listeners will know all about Generic side in, in the trademark world, so too, an, a, a copyrighted image can become generic if it's used too much. It becomes a meme, it has been memefied, and therefore is public domain. Um, and, and that was a legitimate concern, and, and a, again, a non a frivolous argument. And there was, uh, to, not to, to take us too far down the legal rabbit hole, but there, there were a, a number of cases in the 90s where exactly this issue was tried. The most famous case uh, was the, the case with the, the uh, uh, Kuntz case where he used Odie uh, in, a, in a sculpture. Uh, and and the, the good news from our perspective was the, the crux of those cases was that at the end of the day, uh, popularity does not render something public domain. And that is how we tried to frame the memification issue Although I am very proud to say that I was able to put in a brief filed in federal court, the sentence "quote memification is not a thing," which I feel like is about as, as, as you know, mimi a uh, a legal argument as uh, as as one could make, uh, and and ultimately in that was the the most significant summary judgment uh, fight that we had in the Infowars case, and we won and and got I think a very good and and. Um, uh, and and well well reasoned decision essentially saying look this is th- there's there's nothing different about the internet in, in that sense the popularity doesn't render something public to me. and then the third thing that that I would say kept me up at night as it were uh, is as you said Brian you know the earl- Matt's early reaction to uh, Pepe becoming popular was to to just sort of be chill with it right the the, the to let it let it go and to and to uh, you know to to tacitly say, yeah, whatever, (laughs) right? And he had given a lot of interviews, essentially in response to this meme phenomenon, where he said, yeah, whatever, Uh, right? It it seems fine. And, you know, there, the law is very good for copyright holders in that it is very hard to waive your copyright protections without uh, fairly clear statements. But, Uh, it's a concern given the kinds of things that he'd said over time. And that was certainly another area where um, our InfoWars and their litigation was pushing this aggressively and others in response had said, what, what do you mean? Uh, Matt Fury said, anybody can use this. I'm I'm using it however I want. And and so those were sort of the the big picture issues and the tough calls. Ultimately we thought we had the better of all of them, but those were the the tricky issues. Mm
0: -hmm. So when You had to explain to Matt the sort of how you were going to be proceeding with the litigation and with the arguments and the the different kind of calls you were making in the case. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you translated these kind of legal uh, ideas into language that sort of would speak to an artist was it hard was it easy did he like get it right away or did it take a while to sort of get get him to the place where he understood what you were doing and why you were doing it
3: great question and one that i had not really thought much about i guess i would say this i would say um it it was challenging um but but we had the advantage, quite honestly, of, of Matt just being brilliant, uh, which helps, right? So you have somebody that's thought a lot uh, about art and about the sort of the philosophy behind what he's doing. Uh, we did have to teach him a lot of law to, to help sort of understand how to play this out. And, and I think the places where it, it, we have a terrific relationship and and the, and the places where we, once we had in mind the basic idea, right, his basic idea was, I, I don't think it's right for these people to be spewing hate and making money off of my thing, right, and, and so once we sort of have that framework, right, I, th- then it's really up to the lawyers to, to figure out how to to frame those things, uh, but I will say I, you know, spent a lot of time with Matt, preparing him for his deposition that you see in, in the in the in the film, and making sure that he kind of got a, a good good picture of what the, the legal issues were and how it was all going to play out. Um, and, and it's it's not easy. This it, it, it takes time. Uh, you know, lawyers are weird. Uh, the legal system is weird. Copyrights really weird. Uh, and to try to have to sort of break that down and build it back up with an artist is is a challenge. Uh, we were fortunate to have somebody who. had was able to handle it and could deal with the, the the deep thinking part of it just fine.
2: I have to say too, as, as filmmakers, we were being kept up at night quite a bit as well, because in some sense, the the, the very thing that attracted us to this film and it, the subject and the story was really how it spoke to the greater things that we were then and still are confronting now, which is just like uh, this this novel moment where trolling like internet trolling has really seeped into politics and into culture more broadly and what kept me up at night personally was like you know well lewis seems completely right but like what i'm seeing around me politically more broadly is like trolls just kind of subverting um the pillars of democracy right that like there is a kind of way that again, more broadly, fascism works to kind of use um, the systems of democracy against itself in some way, then that's kind of how trolling works too, right? You kind of like play someone else's game against them. And I was really concerned that, um, that, that these kind of uh, bad faith arguments that Alex Jones was making would maybe find a uh, uh, sympathetic ears somewhere. Luckily, I didn't understand enough about law uh, for that
0: to come true, but <laughs> that, those are my fears. Georgio,
3: I thought you were going to go to law school. I don't know. I thought
0: <laughs> so so one thing that I, I I found really interesting about the film and about the entire story, and that I was hoping you you all could like kind of maybe reflect on a little bit more, especially Lewis, was that you know, as a law professor who who teaches copyright law, among other things, I find that one of the more difficult concepts for students to understand and articulate in a deep and rich way is fair use and sort of how to think about it in a litigation context in relation to particular facts. So I kind of wonder if you have any pointers as to sort of how you conceptualize making a kind of pro or con fair use style argument what factors you think are really the most important as opposed to the sort of nominal factors that are always cited by courts like at the end of the day what really matters as opposed to what do we say matters in deciding those kinds of cases and in particular like to what extent do you think the kind of repugnance of the defendants affected the sort of strength of your case and the viability of your arguments
3: yeah that's a, a very good question I think that the that there is always there's there's uh, you know, there's this sort of the, the, the big picture fair use question is does it seem fair or not uh, which is going to turn on all kinds of different things and I of course the the particular as you put it repugnance um, of uh, of a given use uh, it is going to make a difference. I, so, you know, just to, to lay out the, the, for the, the procedural aspect of the way that the InfoWars case played out, we did not move for summary judgment of infringement or summary judgment of no fair use, because quite honestly, it's facty. Uh, we were sure that there would be facts pointed back at us about this being political commentary and about the portion of Pepe being small in relation to the larger thing. Uh, and we had terrific facts, I thought, ourselves on, on in Matt's side, the, the commercial nature of the use. Uh, we had a terrific admission from Alex Jones that Pepe was on the poster because people like it, which is a very helpful commercial uh, sale type admission. So we had great facts going our way. Uh, but we we were not the ones that were interested in getting this resolved at the summary judgment stage. I wanted to go to trial for exactly the reason that, that you say that when you take this, the whole circumstance and figure out who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in this copyright dispute, which is a good chunk of how juries are going to decide fair use cases. Um, we felt pretty good that we were the good guy and that they were the bad guy. So the way that this all played out was once we avoided summary judgment on their fair use defense, that is when Infowars brought in a new lawyer, the new lawyer offered a settlement agreement that was more than we were seeking in the litigation and we didn't go to trial. So it, it, I think that's, a, a, I guess, a long way of answering your question, but the the, the, a sense of justice, a sense of does this feel right or not, given the overall totality of the circumstances, given the who's who, the big guy, the little guy, the bad guy, the good guy, is certainly going to play into a jury's fair use determination, notwithstanding the the recitation of the factors. Now, I will say one more thing about that. that I, there is a, a, a particular fact in this case that we thought um, what was going to be incredibly powerful in front of the jury, and I think was important for the judge, and that was the the particular willful nature of the infringement after this after the notice was was given. And so, you know, I, we've done a lot of different uh, cease and desist letters and those kinds of things on Matt's behalf against people that are are misusing Pepe. The typical response is um, a, a you know a, a they just the thing goes away, right? They vanish and they say nothing, right? They, they, they stop selling. Occasionally we get a, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know this was wrong. Please don't sue me. All of which is fine, right? Alex Jones and Infowars' response was the exact opposite. We sent this notice. They immediately nearly doubled the price of the poster that they were selling and said, buy this now, because it's going to get shut down. Right. So that is about as clear a case of willful and intentional infringement as you could possibly get. Right. They they were trading off of the fact that, that there was this copyright case. And, And to us that, that bolstered the, 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 the lack of fair use in a way that we felt Incredibly good about it, just on on sort of the legal merits, and then you throw in the fact that this is a jury case, and they look at who feels right and who feels wrong. <laughs> you could not paint a more sympathetic picture of Matt than Arthur and Giorgio have done in their film. Uh, we thought we could do a pretty good job at trial explaining that this is the guy who was in the wrong, who, who was wronged here, and that and that it was uh, Infowars that was the problem. And, and, and I think that's going to be generally true for all all of the commercial misuse hateful use uh aspects of pepe that we uh, that we've uh, sought to stop
2: i think arthur is going to have to hire you too because arthur actually purchased one of those posters that alex jones promised to have signed and then when it arrived at arthur's house lo and behold it was not signed
0: oh
1: it's true i'm heartbroken lewis what am i going to do about this <laughs> what's my recourse
3: I wish I wish I'd known that before I deposed them. I could have added it. <laughs> well, I will
1: say with Arthur. We we had a we had a in front of camera lawyer the, Lewis in the film, but behind the camera we had an amazing fair use attorney who really um move some mountains for us in order to make this film. This was a film obviously based on fair use. We have a, at the end of the film, if you stick around for the final, final credits, there's a rather long fair use log. Um, so shout out to Katie uh, Ali at uh, what's, what's the name of her? Donaldson Caliph. Donaldson Caliph. She, uh, she, was, she was also at Sundance with us. Um, and she, she's in great. fact,
3: if, if you want just to, to emphasize just how nerdy lawyers are Brian so she was at Sundance and, and one of her colleagues was at Sundance I was there to watch the premiere as well with uh, one of my colleagues Stephanie Lynn who appears in the film and was was also counsel for Matt uh, and and the the copyright lawyers that worked on the film somehow found us at the bar at the after party so at this really cool like by far the like the most you know, you know the most way out of my league party that I've ever been to what am I doing but chatting with the other lawyers at the bar so that's you know <laughs> your, your listeners can, can aspire to that I guess I don't know <laughs> but you
0: ended up getting a tattoo later that night right no
2: oh, okay.
0: <laughs> well, that's amazing and I very helpful too because I'm always getting requests from filmmakers of recommendations for good uh, fair use attorneys so I'll be sure to to keep her name in, in mind. So in closing, I, I wonder if all of you could briefly reflect on sort of whether you think there are lessons for other artists, and maybe also other attorneys from this story and your experiences documenting and working with Matt on the kind of Pepe the Frog saga. Yeah. Um. Kind of bridging both sides, I feel
2: like there's a business to be created for lawyers where like if you're I think the problem here is that Matt um was just a single artist, right? Like if, if Pepe had been owned by Disney, this would never be a problem. But in a sense, the problem had to get so bad and so in the public eye that it became like a public good <laughs> for Lewis to come in and help pro bono and help Matt. But like for a lot of artists. know they don't have the money to do these cease and desists and like be on top of this nor do they really want to because it's kind of a bummer to be like like matt says in the film like i don't want to sue other artists so i feel like there's there should be like but the truth is like uh a lot of the work can be almost automated in a sense so i I don't know i I think there could be like a service out there that lawyers could get behind it could just be like a, a a simple pro bono slash maybe like monthly service for smaller artists to be able to like get basic protections because the truth is the stuff isn't really going away, and the internet has really transformed the way artists engage with their um, patrons and uh, the way that other less good artists uh, use better artists' work <laughs> for their own gain.
3: I, I can maybe just say one one thing to the to artists and one thing to lawyers. From from my takeaways from this for, for artists, it, my my message is actually is pretty simple, and it's the one I gave earlier. You don't, don't forget that you have some rights here, and you really ought to register your copyright if if you, if you think something's going to get copied. If you if you plan to use them later, do it early. Take care of it. for For lawyers, my message is a little little different. I mean, I I agree with Giorgio that people that have representation that need representation should have representation. That's 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 fundamental, and and I think. Look, I have. Uh, I usually represent companies. I make a ton of money as a partner in a in a in a law firm, and I am basically about as as sort of insulated and privileged as you could possibly be from the kinds of horrible things that the these extremists and these alt right folks and the folks storming the Capitol do. I, I'm about as protected from all of that as you could possibly be. A lot of lawyers are about as protected from all of that as you could possibly be. And and I think with that privilege comes an obligation to do the right thing when it's in your lane. And for me, look, I'm not a civil rights lawyer, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I darn sure am an IP lawyer. And if the alt-right's gonna screw with copyright, bring it on, right? We are ready to fight. And so that's, I think that's the lesson for lawyers is to look for ways to use the privilege you've been given to do the right thing um, when when uh, when it falls into an area about which you can contribute.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well put. And I think both Lewis realizing that and Matt realizing that is the power of the film. It's a very relatable thing that people can just kind of take control of their lives using the tools that they have and um, they should do that with like passion and courage and conviction. Um, As an artist, it's been unique to take a film out in the world just because our film got pirated so often, Um, and so I have like a new compassion for Matt just because in order, when you create something, you do just kind of have to give it over to the universe with a certain amount of good faith, and then um, have to figure out kind of what the emotional guardrails are for that and it's a tricky thing because you can't be the person that's just twitter you know twitter dming every single person that you feel like may have infringed on your piece of artwork in part i think that's an emotional thing artists are are usually um they insulate themselves or they escape from the world through the things that they make so you have to confront the world in a way that's often uncomfortable when you have to protect yourself so i don't know i've been thinking a lot about it i don't necessarily have too many conclusions but i do think it's also important to know that as artists in the social media age you have to think about yourself as your brand i i saw people who assumed that matt was perhaps a member of the alt-right or a neo-nazi because he had drawn pepe the frog they maybe thought that he had drawn pepe for that usage and there's something so tragic in that but it just means that as, all, as we're all hustling in this gig economy, we have to protect our artwork as it is ourselves because that's our livelihood.
2: Here's a delicious irony uh, that reminded me, hey, I haven't checked YouTube in a while and in a while being a week to see if our film had been illegally uploaded. And lo and behold, the first, the first uh, result is a BBC uh, rip of our film that has been seen 684 times and so now I'm going to file the fifth copyright takedown uh, because YouTube and Google make it impossible for filmmakers to be protected, even though they have the tools sitting at their disposal to automate it, stop all this. Yeah. From happening.
1: And it will take a few days for it to come down uh, and more <laughs> people will watch it. And yeah, it's just it's whack-a-mole, as Lewis always says, it's, it's whack-a-mole
0: well thank you so much to all of you for coming on the show i love the movie uh i'm so impressed by the lawyering and all the work that was done in these cases and i really enjoyed talking to all of you so thank you so much for having us. it's
1: great
0: yeah we appreciate it
4: A frog, a plain little frog, who'd sit in the stream and soak. unlike other frogs or kittens or dogs this frog could sing as he croak he went. <laughs> This little frog, the one sat on a log, when he heard the bicycle ring. A boy driving by, caught the frog's eye, and the little frog started to sing. Now the boy was surprised, and looked in his eyes, he couldn't believe what he saw. For a frog that could sing was a pretty rare thing, so the boy took it home to his paw. When his paw saw the thing and heard the frog sing, he formed this little plan. He hired a hall, a band, and all and sold tickets throughout the land. The concert was set to be held at the Met. The hall held a mighty throng. The boys in the band gave the frog a big hand, and then he burst into song. Oh, that is the story of Little Frog's glory. They say he is now in bliss. For he's back in his dream, and if you chance to see him, you might hear him sing just like this.